following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, you have arrived on a morning where we're right in the middle of a sermon series on 2 Samuel. And in our church last year, we went through 1 Samuel. So we've covered a lot of ground over the last year or so. And you're, if you're joining us this morning, you're kind of joining midstream in the middle of the story. And if you don't know the Bible that well, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel focus on David. He's described as a man who is after God's own heart. And God anoints him to be king. But for a long time, he waits until he comes to the throne. And he's persecuted and he suffers. But when we get to 2 Samuel, and that's where we are now, 2 Samuel, this is the moment where he comes to the throne. And we're excited for this. We've been looking forward for this moment. David is now finally king. And what we saw last week is that his kingdom begins very small. And it's not catching, in a sense, all the headlines in Israel. Everyone isn't talking about David. And at this moment, we think, finally, everything is going to be set right. David is king. Everything is going to go well. All of a sudden, at that very moment, two people, Abner and Joab, take over the story. They dominate the story. It becomes about them, in one sense. And so that's where we are today. And that's why I wanted to look at most of chapter 2 and chapter 3 in one sermon, is because it, it addresses and it reports what happened with these two men, with Joab and with Abner. And these guys are powerful men. They're, they're men who not only dominate the, the story, but they, they dominated in history. And they're proud men. They are opportunistic. They're ideological. Uh, they are concerned with their, their own position, their own prominence. And as we read through scripture, we find again and again that we come across people like Abner. And people like Joab. And it's a reminder to us that the kingdom of God, what God is doing in history, isn't just some sort of utopian dream that we have. It's not some imagination. Uh, It's not part of our imagination. It's not some sort of hypothetical or theoretical reality. But it's happening on the ground. It's happening in history. And it's happening among people, yes, like Abner and Joab, but people like us. And we too are sinful people. We too, like David in this account, are sinful and weak. Some of us are sinful and strong. Even so, God is working out his purposes in history, on the ground, in and among and through people like us. And in and among and through people like Abner and Joab. And I've given us a map. And so hopefully you found that in your little worship booklet. On the one hand, this is just simply a reminder that What's happening is happening in history, on the ground, right here. There are places. This is, there, there's, there are cities and regions where these things happen. So this is happening in history. And men like Joab and Abner are impressive. And we may think that God is somehow uh, not working through men like that. Or that somehow God's purposes in history are frustrated by men like that. And what we need to hear this morning is that is not the case. 
God is present. God is working. And yeah, we do need to pay attention to people like Joab and Abner, but we need to recognize in the midst of it what God is doing. God's presence, God's activity. And so what I want to do is review and go over this history, what happens. And it's the history of a civil war between Israel and Judah, between Abner and Joab. And it focuses on these two generals, the generals of these two opposing armies of Abner and Joab. But as we review this history and go over this account, what scripture reports to us, I want us to notice three things as we work through it. First, sin. And it's not going to be hard to notice the sin. God's sovereignty in it all. God's purposes in it all. And sometimes it is harder to see that. We need to see that. And then finally, God's grace and his peace in the midst of it. And we need to look for that and see that. And so briefly, just just to give uh, an introduction to it. This text reveals to us, yes, the sin of people like Jabner, uh, Abner and Joab and even David. And there are consequences. There are consequences to sin. And God's word wants us to see those consequences in this text. And even Abner himself says to Joab, do you not know that the end will be bitter? And the end of sin is bitter. It hurts us. It hurts other people. It's a personal affront to God. The end is bitter. But this narrative also shows us God's sovereignty in history. And we, we can be distracted by people like Joab and Abner. And think, oh no, things are, things are not going to work out. Look at these guys, they've taken over. And this text reminds us, it's okay. God's aware of, jo- uh, of Joab and Abner. And he is working out his purposes through him. And what we'll see in this is what, God, what Jesus himself promised concerning his kingdom, concerning the church. Jesus said, I will build up my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we see a picture of that in this text. And then finally, we see a glimpse. And it is just a glimpse, but we see God's grace and his peace in this. Because Abner, again, he asks, Shall the sword devour forever? And there is a moment in this account where the sword is lifted. And we see in David inviting Abner to Hebron the grace and the peace of God. So that's what I want us to be looking for as we review this history. But as we go over the text, we need to pay attention to the way in which God's word carefully reports to us what happens. Because every word of scripture is God's inspired word. It's inerrant. And Paul himself says that every word of Scripture is there for our instruction, for our correction, for our learning, for our good. So we need to be careful readers of Scripture. And and I want us to look over this account and recognize the way in which God is speaking to us through it. So first of all, if if you have your Bible open... 2 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 12, reports to us this civil war between Israel and Judah, between Abner, who's leading the army of Israel to the north, and Joab, who's leading David's army to the south. And this account focuses on one day, one battle that happened at Gibeon. Now, this was a long, drawn-out war, but God's word focuses on this one day, this one battle, because it's representative of what was going on. 
It's representative of the war. And we're given two scenes of the battle. The first at the pool of Gibeon. And you can see Gibeon there on your map. And then the second, the, the, the conflict of that day when Abner retreats and Joab and his troops pursue him in the wilderness of Gibeon. So there's those two scenes. Now, if you're looking at your map, you can see there Mahanaim. It's east of the Jordan River. That's where the headquarters is for Israel, for Ishbosheth, for Abner. And you can see how far he has marched his troops. There's a little arrow there. So he has marched his army all the way down to Gibeon. And notice how close Gibeon is to Hebron where David is. And so we need to note that because Abner is on the attack. He is the aggressor. He is starting a war. And Joab knows this. He recognizes it. And so he marshals his troops, the servants of David, and they go out to meet Abner and his troops. And they meet in Gibeon. And they meet on either side of a pool. So Abner and his troops on one side, Joab and his troops on the other. And Joab and Abner speak to one another. And Abner says to Joab, let's appoint 12 of our finest soldiers to come out and compete with one another. Now this word compete is important because it's actually a verbal form of the name Isaac. Isaac. So really what Abner is saying is, let's the troops come out and they can Isaac with one another. And the word means to play, to make sport, to laugh. And what Abner is saying is, let's not get into a big conflict. Let's have 12 of our troops come out and we'll do some staged competition. Let's do that. Let's play. And it's significant that there are 12 from each side. Now what this is saying is, and what the competition is meant to decide is, who are the true sons of Abraham, right? Who's the true Isaac? Who are the, two, the two, uh, true twelve? Who are the sons of Jacob? Who are really God's people in this? Let's decide this. Let's have twelve on twelve and see what happens. And it's reported what happens. Each soldier squares off against the other. Grab, they grab one another by the head. They pull each other towards one another. And they thrust the spear into each other's side. And all 24 of them fall down. Dead. So on the one hand, this doesn't resolve anything. There's no decision. On the other hand, it shows God's judgment on this. Neither side represents the sons of Abraham. This is not what true Israel looks like. This is not what the kingdom of God looks like. But this stage competition turns into a fierce battle. We're told that the battle was fierce that day. And Abner leaves in retreat. He starts, he starts running away. And this takes us to the next scene then. And Joab has two brothers. They're very close to him. These three brothers. And one of them, probably the youngest, Asahel, we're told, is very swift of foot, like a gazelle. He's fast. And he takes off chasing after Abner. Now, we've met Abner before, and if you're reading through the account of Scripture, we, we know that Abner is a very old man. He's old. Can't run very fast. Asahel's young. He's fast. Asahel knows, I'm going to catch up to him. I'm going to get him. 
And he is driven by this. He, he's motivated by the cause. He's, he knows that he's fast and he's strong. He knows he can catch up to him. I'm going to get him. I'm going to kill him. He's zealous. He's fast. He's strong. Now Abner is calling back to him. And twice he says this. Turn away. Turn away. Don't pursue me. Now Abner is an experienced soldier. He's not worried about Asahel. But Asahel will not relent, we're told. And there's a picture here. This is typical of young men especially, but probably young people in general, but young men especially who are gifted. But they lack wisdom. They lack maturity. And so in their zeal, they unwisely you know, charge ahead. And Abner has warned Asahel, but he won't relent. He pursues. And what Abner does is actually, as Asahel is about to overtake him, he stops and he thrusts his spear back like that. And Asahel runs right into it, and it goes right through him. And he dies on the spot. Now, when Asahel's brothers, Joab and Abishai, see this, they see their brother dead on the ground. They are filled with rage and vengeance, and they pursue Abner. And Abner finally goes up to a hill, and he looks out, and he says to Joab, Enough. Enough. Let's stop. And this is what he says. He asks him these questions. Verse 26. Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? Now, Abner now is sounding all very pious, like, oh, we're brothers. What's going on here? How long will this be? And Joab knows that he's full of baloney because he says, if you hadn't said anything this morning, this wouldn't have happened. You started this. Even so, Joab says, okay, we'll retreat. So the two sides fall back. That's how chapter 2 ends. And it ends with funerals. Now here we see the consequences of sin. And we need to recognize the consequences of sin. Because Abner does rightly ask, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? Those are exactly the right questions to be asking. And this text reports the consequences of the sin of Abner and the sin of Joab. They didn't inquire of the Lord and ask, is this what we should be doing? Is this your will? They didn't do that. This is what they think they should be doing. And they're concerned about their name, their reputation, their victory. They're not concerned about what God is doing in this. And the result of their sin and their folly isn't just the 24 dead by the pool, but we read at the end of the count, 360 men of Israel and 20 men of Judah died that day. 380 men died because of the sin of Abner and Joab and the folly of Abner and Joab. There are consequences to sin. And not only that, but because of the death of Asahel, the sin of vengeance and bitterness and hatred infects the heart of Joab. And he becomes now obsessed with taking out Abner. He now has a personal vendetta against Abner. And that, that desire for vengeance is going to blind him further to what God is doing. 
in the midst of this. These are the consequences of sin. Now, as we consider our own lives, as we consider our families, as we consider our friends, as we consider our fellowship in the life of the church, we might think, well, this is a pretty extreme situation here, this civil war between brothers. But we need to recognize that the sin of Abner and Joab is not far from our own hearts. And the folly of Joab and Abner is not far from our own hearts. Because Joab and Abner are motivated by self-interest, self-promotion. They're concerned about them. Abner's concerned about Abner. Joab is concerned about Joab. And they're powerful men. And they're using their power and their influence and their authority for their own ends. Now, none of us is in a position like Abner. None of us is in a position like Joab. But if we're honest, too often we are motivated by our own self-interest, our own self-promotion, our own prominence. We're concerned for our own name. Happens in subtle ways. But this is the nature of sin in our hearts. We're turned inwards. We're focused on ourselves. We're self-centered. And yes, we may not, it may not result in us you know, thrusting swords in each other's sides or impaling one another with spears. But remember what Scripture says about our tongue. It's a sword. David will say in the Psalms that the words of his enemies are like spears. And we do. We do wound one another with the sword of our tongues and with the spears of our words. And often because we're motivated by our own self-interest, our own promotion, our own prominence. And the result is we wound one another. So we see that sin has consequences. Sin hurts us. Sin hurts one another. We hurt others because of this. Now, we also see God's sovereign purpose in this. And we have to pay attention to that. And we see what God is doing in the way that the narrator reports this. He's telling us what God is doing. So, Joab and Abner, are, they're doing what, what they want to be doing. They're not so concerned with what God's will is in this. And at the end of the day, Joab thinks he's won the battle. You know, he's graciously, he's graciously received this request of Abner at the end of the day, but 360 of his men have died. Only 20 of his men have died. That sounds like a victory to me, 360 to 20. So Abner leaves thinking, all right, round one goes to Abner. I've won. Now, is that God's perspective? This is Abner's, or this is Joab's victory? Round one goes to Joab. No, listen how it's reported in verse 17. I'll read it for us. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Notice that summary statement. Abner and the men of Israel were beaten. That's all it says. They were beaten. It's presented in the passive tense. The implication of this is, God defeated them. It was his victory. And notice that it wasn't Joab, but the servants of David. And so the narrator is very careful to say, 
those who opposed David's kingdom were beaten. This is God's victory. And what's happening on the ground concerns David, not Joab. Whatever Joab may think. The point is, God's establishing David's kingdom. It's not Joab's kingdom. And then if we look to chapter 3, there's two verses that are important. Again, these are summary statements, but it's telling us how to interpret the whole thing. So look at, look at 3 verse 1, chapter 3 verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Now, that's the summary statement of the word of God on what's happening. David is getting stronger and stronger. The house of Israel is getting weaker and weaker. But then look at verse 6, if you just jump down to verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of Abner, yes, we know that, it's just been reported to us, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now notice that. David is growing stronger and stronger. The house of Saul is growing weaker and weaker. All the while, Abner is making himself stronger. Now what's going on here? What we're being told here is, yes, on the ground, if you were living at this time and observing what was going on, you would be impressed by Abner. You would say, man, this guy is really something. Look at how he's marshaled all of these troops. Look at how valiant he is in battle. Remember what happened on the battlefield with Asahel. So yes, he's making himself stronger and stronger. And on the ground, it looks impressive. But that's the earthly perspective. It's not God's perspective. From God's perspective, David is growing stronger and stronger. God is strengthening David's hand, even though it looks like Abner is getting stronger and stronger. And what this tells us is, whatever Abner is able to do, he cannot thwart, he cannot threaten what God is doing. God's purposes in history. And let's remember what Jesus said concerning the church. I will build my church. That's what I'm going to do. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. I will build my church. And you can look out over church history and you can look out at the world today. And you look at the church in Canada and you think, man, it looks like the opposition, it looks like our enemies are getting stronger and stronger. Yes, Abner is making himself strong. The enemy is making himself strong. It looks that way as you look out. And consider the the experience of Christians around the world and the church around the world. In North Africa, in the Middle East, in China. Yeah, it looks like the enemies of God's people, the enemies of the church, are making themselves strong. And yet, what does Jesus say? I will build my church. David grew stronger and stronger. Uh, My church is growing stronger and stronger. And we might just interpret it through the lens of, okay, if we just assess this from a political or social or economic perspective, it doesn't look that way. But if you look at the example of the early church, 
You know, the early church, the early Christians, they were marginalized, they were persecuted by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire looked strong. The church looked weak. But one of the early Christians, his name was Tertullian, he lived in North Africa, he observed this. The experience of the church, the suffering of the church, the apparent weakness of the church, and the strength and the power of the Roman Empire. And what he observed is, as the Roman Empire exerted its strength, the church grew. And he has a famous line, and you may have heard of it. He says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, that's what we see here. We get a glimpse into the working of God's sovereignty. Yes, Abner made himself strong. But David grew stronger and stronger. And so it is for us. We don't have an earthly perspective on these things. We have the perspective of God's word, the perspective of his promises, a kingdom perspective. Christ said, I will build my church. He is building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, as we read on in chapter 3, we get more sin and more consequences of sin. So as we're reading about this, this battle, this extended war between Israel and Judah, all of a sudden, the narrator breaks off from that and tells us about David and his wives and his sons. So that's chapter 3, verses 2 to 6. He interrupts the account of the war to tell us what David is up to in Hebron. He's acquiring many wives, and those wives are bearing sons to him. Now, this is polygamy. Polygamy. He's got many wives. And sometimes Christians will read this and say, well, you know, it was a different time back then, and they try to excuse David's polygamy. And there are other Christians who will say, yeah, look at David's polygamy. The Bible's okay with that. It permits that. The Bible gives us a broader definition of marriage. And if David's polygamy is okay, why not same-sex marriage? People make those arguments. The Bible permits a broader definition of marriage. Why don't we permit a broader definition of marriage? That's the arguments that that people will make. And, And scholars will argue that. Theologians will make those arguments. But let's be clear about this. The Bible doesn't permit polygamy. The Bible doesn't excuse David's polygamy. The fact that all of a sudden, in the midst of this account of a civil war in Israel... We're told, by the way, meanwhile, David's acquiring many wives and having sons. The narrative puts it there to tell us this is a problem. It's connected to civil war. It's a problem. Now, David knows the law of God. He knows it. He's read Deuteronomy. He's read Deuteronomy 17. All those years as he is preparing to be a king, he's been reading and studying the law of God. And we know this from his Psalms. He delights in the law of God. He meditates on it day and night. And surely he was meditating on the very law of God that speaks to kings. Deuteronomy 17. And it says explicitly there, your kings shall not acquire for themselves many wives. Do not acquire many wives. That's the law of God. David knows it. He's broken it. Now, let's also remember what Jesus himself says concerning marriage. We need to be reminded of this. Matthew 19, 4-6. He's asked a question about marriage and divorce. This is his answer. 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, this is Jesus' definition. This is God's definition of marriage. From the beginning, one man, one woman, joined together in a covenant of marriage for life. That's God's definition of marriage. It's crystal clear. There are no alternatives or variations on that. David's polygamy is a sin. Now, why does he do this? Why does he acquire many wives? Well, this was typical of kings in the ancient world. All kings did this. They acquired many wives for themselves. On the one hand, it, was, it, it showed that they were powerful and that they were wealthy and you know, it was a, a display of their, their position. The other, the other reason they did it was to make political alliances. These are political marriages. David does that himself. Look at verse 3. The son of Maacah, this is one of his, or, uh, sorry, yeah, the, the, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Tal, Talmai, king of Geshur. So he marries the daughter of the king of Geshur. Now, if you look on your map, it's not listed there, but check on the map there. You see the Sea of Galilee. Well, just in that region where it's printed there, Sea of Galilee, that's Geshur. That's Geshur. Now, why would David want to marry the daughter of a king of Geshur? Well, it's pretty obvious. What's between Geshur and Hebron? His enemy. That's where Ishbosheth is. That's where Abner is. So this is pretty strategic. It's a prudent move. Makes a lot of sense. Hey, I'm in alliance with the guys that are behind my enemy. Smart move, David. And David thinks this is going to strengthen the kingdom. This will help my cause. Now, who is the son of this marriage? It's Absalom. Absalom is later going to defy his father David and divide the kingdom. He will weaken the kingdom. What David thinks is helping is later going to be a source of profound suffering and grief and sin and tragedy. So again... We trust in the word of God because God's commandments are for our good. And we may think we know better. We don't. There's a proverb. There's a way that seems good to a man. This seemed good to David. But then the proverb says that way leads to death. And there's another son from one of David's, one of David's marriages, Adonijah. He too causes a division in the kingdom. And the reason we're told at this point that David had many wives in the midst of an account of civil war is because this is part of the history of Israel's civil war. David's sin has consequences. And it's a reminder to us that when we follow the commands of God, and especially concerning marriage, when a society upholds God's definition of marriage, that's good for the society. And when we are faithful as husbands and wives, when we're faithful... As fathers and mothers, that's going to be good for society. It's good for you. It's good for society. When we redefine things, when we break God's commandment concerning that, there are consequences. There will be suffering. 
And it's not just Christians that have this perspective because we have the light of God's world, or God's word. Any sociologist who looks at this, a society that, that doesn't have this structure for marriage, recognizes this is bad for society. It's bad for children. We suffer because of it. I mean, that's, that's obvious. We, we can document that. We can show that. We know that. So we're reminded here, even David's sin has consequences. He thinks he's helping, he's not. But there is blessing in obeying the word of God. Now as we read on in chapter 3, we find that Abner and Ishbosheth have a falling out. Now I won't go into the detail of that, but Abner turns against Ishbosheth. And if you look at verse 9, this is what he says. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. Abner the whole time has known what God's will is in this. He knows David is, is the one that God has sworn the kingdom to. And now things aren't going well. There's a conflict. So he says, I, God, God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the house of of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. Well, this is a modest claim that he's making here. He thinks, I'm the one that will accomplish what God has sworn to do. I'll do it. I'll transfer the kingdom. I'll make this happen. Again, Abner doesn't quite get it, does he? I mean, the presumption and the arrogance of this. But let's be honest, and especially for those of, uh, of you and me who are in positions of leadership and have some influence, we can easily think that, oh, this whole thing depends on me. Look what I'm doing for God. None, none of it depends on me. None of it. It doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on Abner. So there, there's a delusion of arrogance and pride, which makes us think, hey, this, this whole thing's happening because of me. It's depending on me. Well, it's not. It's got nothing to do with Abner. Now, Abner reaches out to David. He sends a message to him. He says, make a covenant with me. Make a covenant. Now, David is not stupid. He knows who Abner is. But David says, good, good. Verse 13, I will make a covenant. Good. And then we have this remarkable picture of Abner and 20 of his men coming to Hebron. And David throws a feast for them. And they enter into a covenant. Now, David's not stupid. He knows, he knows who Abner is. But he recognizes, hey, Abner has just laid down his arms. This is an opportunity for peace. And what does David do? He extends grace. He extends peace. And look what it says in verse 21. David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And then over the next two verses, that's repeated two more times. Abner went in peace. He went in peace. And this means that Abner's status, 
is defined now by his covenant with David. And he's in peace. He's at peace with David, but he's, he's gone in peace. He's received the grace. He's received this, this, this generous feast. In that meal, they ratified the covenant with one another. And there's now peace. And Abner is defined by that peace. Now, we, we might look at this and think, well, we just heard Abner's you know, great claims about what he's going to do. This looks like kind of a superficial conversion. He's obviously got lots of baggage and there's a whole checkered history there and there's lots of his own sin. And yeah, we might question his priorities in this. We might question his motivations in this. Even so, David invites him and he makes peace and Abner leaves in peace. And I think this is a beautiful picture of the covenant grace and peace that is extended to us in Christ. And as I look out over this congregation and if you just look out You know, look around, look at one another. Some of us have very complicated histories. Some of us have a checkered past. None of us has it all figured out. None of us is perfect. We're all a work in progress. Some of us have good theology, but we we bully other people with our good theology. We don't know how to handle it. Notice Abner's got good theology. And he hits Ishbosheth over the head with it. Some of us have bad theology. You know, some of you have really crazy ideas about things. You know, quite frankly. Okay. You're listening to so-and-so on the internet. And you're excited about that. And it's way off. Some of us have really hurt others in this church. We've sinned against one another. The point is, as you look at this text and you look at the sin and the, and the wickedness and the weakness and the folly of Israel at the time, let's not think, hey, it's so much better now. It's not. This is, this is kind of how it is among us. But notice that David now sees Abner in the light of the covenant that he has just made. Abner has left in peace. And whatever, whatever our checkered past, whatever you know, work God still needs to do in our lives, we've all come here because Christ has extended his covenant of grace and peace to us. Every Sunday we come to a feast, to a table. Every Sunday we leave in the peace of Christ. And we, we look around and we see one another in the light of that covenant of grace. That covenant of peace doesn't mean there isn't work to be done and there, need, there doesn't mean there doesn't need to be repentance and forgiveness and doesn't mean we need to do a better job of loving one another or we need to get our theology straight. Okay, that's all happening. But we see one another in the light of the, of the grace and the peace of Christ as David saw Abner. Now notice Joab refused to see Abner in that light. What have you done, D- David? How could you do this? He refuses to see Abner in the light of the grace and the peace of the covenant that David has made. Will not see Abner that way. And his heart is hard. And he is bent on vengeance. And he invites Abner back. And Abner, trusting, comes back. And he says, let's meet in the city gate. And he takes him to a private chamber in the city gate. 
lures them in there. And then he kills them in cold blood for the death of his brother. Now the city gate was a place of judgment in the ancient world. And what Joab is doing is he's taking the law into his own hands. He's taking judgment into his own hands. And we need to be clear about the law. Abner killed Asahel in the context of battle. It was not first degree murder. It does not require the death penalty. Not only that, Abner now is in a covenant of grace and peace with David. He's under the blessing, the security of that covenant. Joab doesn't care. He rejects it. He kills Abner in cold blood. Now David will say at the end, in the last verse, he says, I was weak today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, Joab, are too hard for me. Now David should have brought Joab to justice for this. But he says, I'm too weak. He's too hard for me. He can't do it. So what does he do instead? First of all, he laments the death of Abner, just as he lamented the death of Saul. And he calls down curses on Joab. And we heard them read to us, and I'm going to read them again. Now this sounds pretty harsh to us. May it fall upon the head of Joab. This is verse 29. And upon his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. These are curses. He curses Joab. And we think, okay, wow, this is pretty harsh coming out of the words, uh, coming out of the mouth of David. But here's why he does it. He, he's absolving himself of any guilt in Abner's death. He's made a covenant with Abner. And what would have happened when they came together and they were breaking bread together and entering the, into this covenant, yes, they would have talked about the blessings and the peace and the grace of this covenant. But they also would have announced out loud to one another curses for breaking the covenant. David would have said these very same things. May it fall upon me. May this happen to me if I break my covenant with you, Abner. And Abner would have said the same. They would have called down curses on themselves. David didn't break the covenant. Abner didn't break the covenant. Joab did. And so all David is doing is saying, Joab, the curses of breaking this covenant will fall on you. May they fall on you. And he says at the end, the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. He calls for God's judgment, God's justice. And as we look out at the world and we recognize there are powerful people, wicked people doing evil things, and there's nothing we can do about it. But we know that vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will judge, and he will. He will judge in the end. He will set things right. And yes, there's a lot we can't do anything about. And we lament it and we grieve it. But we can say with David, the Lord will repay. He will judge. He will set things right. Now, as we approach the Lord's table and come to the end of this sermon, let's remember that we live in a fallen world. And there are consequences to sin. 
And you know, it's easy for us to look at people like Joab and Abner, and if you just think about it, in, in movies and TV shows, these, these kinds of guys are elevated. They're celebrated. They're glorified. Don't be impressed by Joab and Abner. There are consequences to sin. They suffer because of it. And many suffer because of it. Abner's right. The end is bitter. The end of our sin is bitter. But at the same time, we recognize that in the midst of it all, God is present. God is working. His purposes are not frustrated by people like Abner and Joab. They're not thwarted. They're not manipulated. God is working out his good purposes in history. He did it for David. He's doing it for us. And yes, Christ is building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But also, let's leave today remembering the blessing of the covenant of God's grace and peace that we have in Christ. Abner laid down his arms. He entered into a covenant with David. May we lay down our arms, lay down our opposition, our sin, and enter into the covenant of the grace and the peace of Christ. And here is the the sheer glory of the gospel. That the consequences of our sin, the judgment of our sin, the curses of our sin have been placed on Christ. He bore it all on the cross. And Paul says in a couple of his letters that this is the mystery of God's purpose, that he is uniting all things in Christ. And he says in Colossians chapter 1, and Trevor, you mentioned in your prayer that we belong to the assembly of the firstborn. And Paul says, concerning the firstborn, Christ, that God is reconciling, bringing all things together in Christ through the cross of Christ. And that's the glory of the cross of Christ that all of the sin and the confusion and the wickedness of what we see with Joab and Abner and what we see in our own lives is gathered up and it is dealt with. It is judged in Christ on the cross. And yes, even someone like Abner is invited to come in and receive the mercy and the grace of Christ. And we have been invited to receive the mercy and the grace of Christ. And so let's come to the Lord's table knowing that just as David laid out a feast for Abner, so Christ lays out a feast for us. And this is a covenant meal. And it's a confirmation that We are the recipients of God's mercy and grace. And just as Abner left in peace, so every Sunday and today we leave in the peace of Christ. So let's lay down our arms. Let's confess our sins. Let's come to the covenant table of Christ. Let's receive his mercy and grace. Let's be established in his peace. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.